You're listening to audio provided by Valleydale Church. To find more resources or to donate to this ministry, please check out valleydale.org. Folks, I hope when you came in, you picked up one of these cards. This will be very important next Sunday. I'm not going to go through it like I have uh, for the last couple of weeks. Uh, It's kind of self-explanatory. If you did not pick one of these up, please pick one up. Take it home. Make it a priority this week for the two of you, husband and wife. If you're married, if you're single, then you get to make up your own mind. Um, But um, those of you that are couples, sit down and pray. And if you have children, let me tell you what you ought to do. You ought to all week this week, you ought to make this a part of your supper time, your meal time when you're together. Say, we're going to pray. We're asking the Lord, teach your children about how they are to be responsible uh, to the church and uh, how they are to participate and how they're to be a part of what God is doing in the church. So you take this this week and uh, pray over it and come next Sunday morning. We gather just in one service. It's going to be a great day. We're going to eat afterwards. And if you're a guest, I'm going to have a tent and uh, if you say, I don't have a life group to go to, that's okay. I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have food at my tent and we'll feed you. You come and you be my guest and uh, we'll help you meet a life group and I'll take care of feeding you next Sunday, okay? Good. Now, you think that today is Halloween, but I'm telling you today is really Hallelujah. It's not Halloween, it's hallelujah, and uh, I'm going to be a little different this morning. I'm going to do more teaching, and I'm going, not as much preaching, but I'm going to do more teaching, and I'm going to begin on the date of July the 2nd in the year 1505. 22-year-old law student was on his way home. Law school was off for a few weeks. Uh, He had finished up a semester. He was on his way back to mom and dad's. Uh, And the only way to get there was either by horseback or a carriage or walking, and that's what he was doing. He was walking home after the semester. And uh, he was caught in a thunderstorm, and in the middle of that thunderstorm, he had entered some woods not far from his mom and dad's house, and uh, suddenly, out of nowhere, a lightning bolt hit a tree standing right next to him. And it's so terrified, he was so convinced that God was trying to kill him that he fell down on the ground on his face and he cried out these words, St. Anne, save me and I'll become a monk. And Martin Luther was good to his word. His father got angry at him. His father got mad at him. His father wouldn't even speak to him for a long time. Was not even going to go to his ordination until his wife finally talked some sense into him. Uh, But uh, Luther went into the monastery. He went into the order of uh, St. Augustine, became an Augustinian monk, went to school, trained. Uh, Even though his father was upset with him, wanted him to be a lawyer, wanted him to make money, didn't want him to be a preacher, where he would take a vow of poverty. So... um, But Luther went in anyway. That's what he promised. That's what he did. And uh, he became a good monk. He became a good Augustinian monk. And he did everything he could possibly do to earn the love of God and to earn his salvation. In fact, if you know anything about Luther, what you have to know about Luther is this. Now, I've already told you one thing. He was full of fear. He was always fearful. He was scary. 
And uh, he was fearful that God was going to just take his life, going to zap him at any moment. The other thing about his life was this. He was riddled with guilt, full of guilt, guilt about everything that he did. And so Luther would do everything that he possibly could to earn the love of God and to earn the forgiveness of God. He would fast. In fact, Luther, in all honesty, if you know anything about Luther and you read about the, the end of his life, uh, his health had been broken because of what he did in his younger days uh, by being so austere. He would fast to the point of near passing out, near starvation. He would sleep on the stone floor of the monastery uh, in the wintertime with the window open and no blanket, and they would come in. He nearly suffered many times from hypothermia. Uh, he did everything he could, thinking that if I do enough, God will love me, and God will forgive me, and God will accept me, and God will save me. He would go to confession constantly. Not, not once a month, he'd go to confession, not once a week, he'd go to confession every day. And every day he would go into the confessional and wouldn't spend five minutes in there, you know, Father, forgive me for I have sinned. It's been uh, 23 hours since my last confession. Uh, and he would stay in there for hours. Uh, and it got so bad that the monks in the monastery would run from him when they saw him coming because they didn't want to sit in in, in, in that position there in the confessional and have to listen to him drone on for an hour or two hours about every thought that went through his head and every action that he had twisted into some kind of offense against God. He struggled. It, it really does seem kind of funny, but this guy really struggled with guilt and sin in his life and fear in his life. He had one friend. That friend was uh, a guy by the name of Stoppitz, and Stoppitz was the vicar of all of the Augustinian orders in Germany. And he loved Luther. He cared for Luther. He saw how conflicted Luther was. He was sorry for Luther, and he kept trying to encourage Luther, and Luther just never could, he never could get beyond his fear and his guilt. And so Stoppitz, after a while, decided, I'm going to send him to Rome. I'm going to send him down to Rome. If he goes to Rome, maybe there he'll find the answer that he's looking for. So he called Luther in, and he told him, he said, I've got some business that has to be transacted in Rome with the church, and I'm sending you to do it. And Luther was excited beyond words, excited beyond words to get to go to Rome. He just knew that his answer was in Rome and that he would get to Rome and that God would finally show him how he could be saved, how he could be forgiven, how God would accept him. But he gets to Rome and he's incredibly disappointed. He goes to mass and he discovers that the priests that are doing the mass are drunk from the wine that they've been drinking. Uh, and then he discovers all of these children that keep running around the priest and he finds out that these are the children of the priest because the priests are shacked up with prostitutes. And so Luther just is brokenhearted from what he sees in the church and then he sees something that is going to make a difference in his life. He begins to see the selling of indulgences and he really can't understand how the church could sell an indulgence. Now, I'll get to that in a moment. It bothered him. The priest bothered him. The immorality bothered him. The drunkenness bothered him. And the selling of indulgences really bothered him. And so he went to see every relic he could see in Rome. Go see the splinter of the cross. Go see the thumb of St. Ambrose. Go see the, 
uh, crown that came from St. Helena. You know, just all these things that are there. And he thought by doing that, he was earning the righteousness of God in his life. And so he went finally to a place called St. John of the Lateran. Now, you think that the Pope is the bishop of St. Peter's, but St. Peter's is just a basilica. It's just a church. It's where he lives. It's where all the uh, offices of the Vatican reside, but it is only a basilica. Um, He is actually the Pope. He is actually the bishop of St. John of the Lateran. St. John of the Lateran was the place where they built the first church in Rome. Uh, St. Paul, St. Peter's Basilica is built over what they claim to be the grave of St. Peter. So if you go to Rome, if you ever go to Rome with me, I take groups there and I take groups there for one reason, because you ought to see it. The, The other reason is because it gives me the opportunity to show the guides something that they don't know about. And it gives me a chance to share with them the gospel. Now, what you do when you go to St. John of the Lateran is you will discover that there's an entire building built beside St. John of the Lateran that holds these steps right here. They're called the Sancta Scala. Do you see the steps? There are 28 of them. You cannot walk up those steps. There are two flights of stairs on either side of this stairway. These are called the sacred steps. They were brought we're told by the mother of Constantine, Helena, they were brought back to Rome and these were the actual steps they claim that Jesus stood on when Pilate there at the Herodian brought Jesus out before the crowd and said, I find no fault in him. What would you have me do with him? And the crowd in Jerusalem cried out, crucify him. Let his blood be on us and on our children. Those are the steps they claim. They're made out of their marble steps. They're covered now. You can't, you can't, because you see how worn they are uh, for you know, a thousand plus years, 1,500 years or so. These have been there in Rome and people have gone up them. What you do is you start off at the bottom. This is what Luther did. He started off on the first step and uh, on your knees and you have to say a Hail Mary. Hail Mary full of grace, uh, mother of God, you know, this kind of thing. You do that and then you go, you climb to the next step on your knees and there you do an Our Father. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And you do that all the way up for 28 steps on your knees. Hail Mary on one step and Our Father on the next step. According to Luther's son, when Luther got to the top of the steps, He stood up and a verse hit his mind and his heart that he did not fully understand at the time. And it's Romans chapter 1 verse 17. Take your copy of God's word because that's where we're going to go. Romans chapter 1 verse 17, the just shall live by faith. Now, there's great debate among historians as did that really happen? Is that a true story? Well, all I can tell you is that Luther's son said this is what happened. So I'll just take it as pretty good proof that this is what happened or something like it. Luther gets to the top of those steps and all of a sudden he thinks of Romans chapter 1 verse 16, which is actually Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4. It is mentioned there, it is quoted in Romans 1, uh, 17, the just shall live by faith. And Luther thought to himself, what does that mean? 
What is Paul saying? What is Habakkuk saying in this? What does Paul mean by putting it here in Romans chapter 1? What is he trying to say? What does that mean to me? Why is this so heavy on my heart? And over the next little while, Luther began to work this out as he thought over it, prayed over it, read it, that he came to the understanding that it was not what I did that brought me the righteousness of God. But it was what Jesus did that brings to me the righteousness of God. He came to understand that it was not how much work I could do, how much penance I could do, how many relics I could see, how many Hail Marys, how many Our Fathers I could quote, how many times I went to confession, how many sins I could confess. It was none of that. The just shall live by faith. It is that Jesus Christ died for me and God accepted the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and from the empty tomb and has now given me his righteousness. Now that's what Luther came to understand. And at the same time that Luther came to understand that, are y'all okay? Is this all right? You want me to just quit? Okay, all right. Well, you begged for it, so now here it is. Um, There was a guy who represented the Pope in Rome who had been sent out. I mentioned to you St. Peter's Basilica. They started building it in 1506. You come to 1517. And uh, they are going to build it clear into the 1600s. It's going to take them 150 years to build St. Peter's Basilica. That's a building program now, right? Um, and uh, he needs money. The Pope needs money. So he sends a guy by the name of Johann Tetzel out to raise money to give back to Rome to build St. Peter's Basilica. And so what uh, Tetzel does, he's a brilliant marketer. He decides, I can sell indulgences. If I get indulgences from the Pope, I can go and sell these indulgences to people uh, who will want to get out of purgatory. Now, let me explain this whole concept right here. In the Roman church, Christ did die for your sins, but uh, there is additional work that must be done to the work of Christ. That additional work has to be what you do in your life. There are six sacraments, six or seven sacraments of the Roman church. I'm not going to go through those because it just take me too much time. But you go through these sacraments. There are things like confession and you must go to mass and you must, you know, uh, do all of these things. You have last rites. All of this you've got to do. Or uh, you're not earning enough merit to go with what Christ did and enough merit, then you have to turn to the church. And the church, remember, Peter holds the keys. Remember that? It's not really what the passage teach, teaches, but that's what they believe it teaches. Peter holds the keys, so the church is going to determine your salvation as well. So you have the works of Christ, you have the church, and then you have your works that you must add. And nobody, unless you're a saint, gains enough merit that when you die, you go straight to heaven. So you must go to a place where you are purged, and it is called purgatory, where you are purged. And for about five or 6,000 years, you just roast in the fires of purgatory until you're all burned out and you're clean, and now you can go to heaven. 
So Tetzel came through, and this is what Tetzel would do. Tetzel would get up. He wouldn't talk about you going to purgatory. He'd talk about your poor mother who is in purgatory. Your mother's in purgatory. Look at your sainted mother. They're writhing in the flames of purgatory, and you've got money in your pocket. You could buy time off of her time in purgatory. How dare you not get your mother out of purgatory? And so what do you do? Well, poor mom, I got to get her out of purgatory. So I go and I buy indulgences. And when Luther saw this, it sent him out of his mind. You would have thought he was Baptist at that point. He, he, Luther went out of his mind. And so Luther began to sit down and write concerns that he had about the church. He had no intention of starting a reformation, but he wanted to have uh, a conversation about certain things going on in the church that really don't seem to be biblical at all. And so he writes down these 95 theses and he walks it down to the Wittenberg church there in Wittenberg where he lived, where he was uh, studying, where he was teaching. And he nailed it to the door of the church because that was the internet of that day. You know, you would go to the door of the church and there on the door of the church would be all of this information. We, here is the dessert we had last night at Fleming's, you know, and they would put that up there. And then it was the beginning of Facebook. And you put up, he put up his 95 theses and said, here are the 95 things that really concern me about the church. I think we need to sit down and talk about. Well, when the Roman church heard that and found out about it, they sent the most learned scholar in all of Roman Catholicism. His name was Johann Eck, Eck of Ingolstadt the great debater of the Catholic um, Church. And there at Leipzig, they brought this little known, nobody knew who Martin Luther was. Nobody had ever heard of Martin Luther's name. And they brought this little Augustinian monk in before the greatest debater of that day, Eck of Ingolstadt. And there, as Luther shared with Eck, what he believed, that authority came from the word of God, Eck stood up and screamed at him and said, you must be a follower of Jan Hus. And the little monk said, ich bin ein Hussite. I am a Hussite. I am a follower of Hus. The authority rests in the word of God, not a man. Oh, man, I can jump all over this stuff. And out of all of this now begins to come. So 500, it was in 1517. I think that was 540 years ago today on October the 31st on All Hallows Eve, the eve of All Saints Day, which is tomorrow, November the 1st, Luther nails those theses and out of it is going to come five thoughts. Now, this is where you need something. Y'all are just all looking at me. You need something to write on. There are five things that come out of this that I'm going to give you. The first is sola scriptura. That's Latin. There it is. It's dark over in Rome, so you can't see the Latin. It's sola scriptura. Scripture alone. What is our authority? It is scripture alone. Only the Word of God. It's not 
popes, it's not bishops, it's not preachers, it's not councils. It is God's word and God's word alone that is our guide. Who do we turn to to get an authoritative word? We turn to the word of God. So it is sola scriptura. That's the first thing you get out of this reformation. The second thing you're going to get is sola Christius, Christ alone. Who died for my sins? Who saved me? Christ and Christ alone. It is not Christ and the church. It is not Christ and the confessional. It is not Christ and me taking the sacraments. It is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Nothing else. Jesus plus nothing. Sola Christius. The third is sola gratia. Well, how? What saves me? What is it that saves me? Sola gratia, grace alone. For by grace have you been saved. That is what saves me. How am I saved? Sola fide, faith alone. For by grace have you been saved through faith. And that's not of yourself. It is faith in Jesus Christ. It is not faith in the church. It is not faith in a man. It is not faith in your education. It is not faith in this, that, or the other. It is faith in Jesus Christ alone. And then you come to the fifth thing, and the fifth thing is sola deo gloria, to God's glory alone. The word of God alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, and to God be the glory alone. Now, those five things come out of what began on this day 504 years ago in a little German village called Wittenberg when a little monk who was convinced that the word of God was the authority for our lives. He came to understand what Paul was saying in Romans chapter 1. And I want you to take your copy of God's Word and go there because Paul begins to talk about the confidence he has in the gospel. Luther came to understand Paul's confidence in the gospel. Now, I'm going to show you verse 16 and verse 17 we're going to look at uh, because it it's just, we just should. Today's the right day to do this. And uh, you need to know all of that background and understand this so that you have a greater appreciation of, uh, of uh, the church and of your Protestant faith. And uh, I, it, it has taken everything within me not to mention the Anabaptists. Oops, I mentioned them, didn't I? But that's all I'll be able to say. Now, Romans chapter 1, verse 16, you're going to see the substance of the gospel. And in verse 17, you're going to see the effect of the gospel. Paul has confidence in the gospel. So much so, in fact, look at verse 15. So for my part, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's saying, I want to come to Rome. I want to preach the gospel in Rome. I want to get there to the city of Rome. I want to go to the capital of the imperial capital of, uh, of, uh, of the empire. I want to go there because I, listen to what he says, verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
I'm not ashamed to go and preach the gospel. I'm not ashamed to stand up in the imperial capital of Rome, uh, uh, of the empire, and say, Jesus Christ is Lord. I'm not ashamed to open my mouth and speak the name of Jesus. I'm not hesitant. I don't back down. I don't just keep my mouth shut. I am not ashamed to mention Jesus Christ in a conversation. I'm not ashamed to stand on a street corner and talk to somebody about Jesus Christ. I'm not ashamed or embarrassed or hesitant to stand in a pulpit in Rome, the capital of the world at that day, and call out the name Jesus Christ. How often are we willing to stand up in church and boast of this and yet spend a week withdrawn and quiet and never mention the name of Jesus to anyone? Paul says, I'm not ashamed. And you say, well, now, how do we really know that? Well, I'll tell you how we know that. Paul went to Philippi and he preached Jesus Christ and they beat the fire out of him with rods and threw him in prison. He left there and he went down to a place called Thessalonica. And at Thessalonica, they rioted in the street because of him preaching Jesus Christ. And they sneaked him out of the city. They got him down to Berea. And down at Berea, uh, he preached in the name of Jesus Christ. And all the folks at Thessalonica came down there to upset the people at Berea to hunt up and find Paul. But they sneaked him out of there and he got down to Athens. He stood out in the middle of the marketplace. It would be like going up to the Galleria, standing out by the carousel in the Galleria, and you just start preaching Jesus Christ. That's what he did. He went to the center of the Agora, the marketplace. He started preaching Jesus Christ, and they laughed him out of the city. He left there, and he went down to Corinth, and there at Corinth, in the midst of all this immorality, he starts preaching Jesus Christ, and they're down there, and they calling him a fool. He heads off, and he goes to Jerusalem, and there in Jerusalem, he is an irritation, and they hate him with a passion. And they want him dead, and they try to kill him. Had it not been, you want to talk about funny. Now listen, has God got a way to save you or not? <laughs> the Jews try to kill him in Jerusalem, and you know what God does? God uses the Roman army to come get him and drag him out of there and save his life. <laughs> now tell me, God can't do what needs to be done. They, they hate him in Jerusalem. Listen, they stone him and leave him for dead in Galatia. I think he proves He's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God. Now, that little word power right there is the word dunamis in the Greek. Now, we think it means dynamite. It really doesn't, but it helps you understand what the word means. It means that which has inherent power, that which has power within itself. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. When you sit down to talk to somebody about Jesus Christ, you don't need anything else but the gospel. There's enough power in the gospel to do everything that needs to be done. In a you don't need to take a, a, a book of Shakespeare with you. You don't need to take something that Dr. Phil has said with you. You don't need to take something Oprah has talked about with you. You don't need to take anything that you learned in, in college or even seminary. All you need to do, take the gospel. The power is in the word of God. That's a theme for Paul throughout all of his epistles. In fact, you got your Bibles open to Romans 1. Look at verse 4. 
He's already mentioned it. Who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Now, that's how you know God has power. He has raised the dead. By the way, I don't have time to talk about this, but if you get over to Revelation chapter 13, what is the Antichrist and what is Satan going to do in the last days uh, when all hell is breaking loose uh, to confirm the power of the beast? He is going to look like he causes him to come back to life. He's going to mimic what God and only God can do. Why? Because we know that real power is if somebody can make you live for eternity. What has man looked for all of human history? How can we live forever? Where literally is the fountain of youth? And it's not in St. Augustine, Florida. I can tell you that. I've been there. It's in Jesus Christ. It's in God. Listen to what the Word of God says, Romans 8, 3. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, where Paul says that the preaching of the cross is foolishness to the world. If you're here and you're lost and I'm preaching about a man being crucified, you think that's the craziest thing in the world to talk about. But let me tell you, Paul says, for those of us that are saved and being saved, it is the power of God unto salvation. It is power. Listen to Psalm 106, verse 8. It's a fascinating verse. In the midst of the Old Testament, he saved them for his name's sake that he might make his power known. Now, if you're there, still, Romans 1, 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone. Look at this. To everyone who believes. I want you to see that to everyone, whosoever will, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, then to the Greek. Now, that's not, that's not saying that Jews are better than Gentiles. It was the order of God's working. He comes and he says this. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation. You know what that salvation does? Number one, let me tell you, it brings redemption. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 14. Colossians 1 verse 14. Listen to what it said there. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. That's what Luther came to understand was that I have the forgiveness of my sin. I know, listen, when Jesus Christ, when you come to Jesus Christ and you put your faith and your trust in him, let me tell you, he not only forgives your sin, he covers your sin under his blood, he forgets your sin, and all that guilt that you have built up in your life over sin, listen, God remembers your sin no more. Oh, God, I'm so sorry for what I did. I keep going back to, you know, September the 13th of uh, 19, you know, 95, and I did this on that day. I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. You've, listen, if you've asked God to forgive you, every time you do something like that, God looks at you. He says, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> it's under the blood, folks. If it's under the blood, it's not only forgiven, it's forgotten. Now, listen, let me tell you, y'all just sit there like a bunch of Baptists if you want to. That is wonderful news. 
He has not only forgiven, but he has forgotten my sin. It is redemption. Look at the second thing that that means. He says, I'm not ashamed. It's the power of God for salvation. There is the redemption of Jesus Christ. There is the reconciliation with God and with one another. If you've got your Bibles, look at Ephesians chapter 2 and listen to what Paul says in verse 13. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Hebrews chapter 10 when he says, uh, Therefore, brethren, uh, seeing that we have so great a salvation, listen, we can come before the throne of God with boldness. We've been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. I have entree to God anytime, any place, anywhere, for any reason. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus Christ. That is salvation. That's part of my salvation is that he has not only forgiven me, but he has made me to be at peace with God and God to be at peace with me. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He's talking about Jew and Gentile here. By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law, uh, of uh, commandments contained in ordinances so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross. What he's saying in all of that is this, is we not only have been reconciled to God because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen, we've been reconciled to one another. Now, who in here is mad at somebody in this church? Go ahead, go on. You want to testify? We, we get so upset and mad and infuriated in church. The blood of Jesus Christ has reconciled us. There's no, there's no place in the family of God for upset. No, no place in a Christian's life for upset. I'm not upset with anybody because... They disagree with me on something. Listen, we've got a world that is so divided in so many ways. we got half the American population that's scared to death of a virus and a vaccine and the other part of the United States scared to death of government control. And you're all divided up. And you know what? I see it in the church. And you're mad at each other about it. Oh, for crying out loud. We're mad at each other about a vaccine, about a mask. You got a mask on? You don't have a mask on. I'm mad about it. Jesus Christ died to get you over that mess. In fact, I read something this week. Let me, let me, let me just tell you, you say, well, now, you're being political. I don't give a flying flip. I'm just telling you right now, I'm not political. I don't get up here and preach politics, though I've had some people accuse me of it. And then I got other people that send me notes and tell me that I'm not conservative enough and near Republican enough, and I don't preach, and they're threatening me on the other side. So you know what? I figure out I'm right in the middle, and I'm irritating all of you. <laughs> let, me, let me read you something that came out this week. My, one of my dear friends who's a professor of New Testament at Baylor sent me this article, called, and you've probably seen it, The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. I, I, I think he may be a little premature, but just listen to what he says. He got this right. I think this is exactly right. The aggressive, disruptive, and unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our politics has found a home in many Christian churches. 
I'm going to read that again because I just love it, and I hope it needles somebody. The aggressive, disruptive, unforgiving mindset that characterizes so much of our politics has found a home in many churches. We sound more like political parties than we do the kingdom of God. We get more upset about that than the fact that there are people lost around this church dying and going to hell. And yet we'll get bent out of shape about everything else. But the one thing that makes a difference for eternity. If I die of COVID, I die of COVID. If I don't die of COVID, I'll die of something else. You know what? I'm going to. You are too. You are too. You're going to die. And after that, the Word of God says, the judgment. Unless you know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Well, what were we doing? We're reconciled. We don't have any right as the people of God to be mad at each other. Now, you can disagree all day long. That's fine. We disagree um, in, in our family. I disagree from time to time with my wife. I just don't tell her about it. But we disagree. But let me, let me tell you something. I'm not mad. I'm not going to leave my wife for love nor money, uh, even though we may disagree. I'm not going to leave this church until God calls me on. And, and you, you can be mad as fire at me if you want to. I'm telling you, we've been reconciled through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, let me give you the last thing, and that's transformation. That's what everybody wants. I want to be changed. I'm sick of being who I am. I wish I could change. Deep down on the inside, we say that to ourselves. I don't like who I am. Well, let me tell you something. The blood of Jesus Christ changes who you are. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old things passed away, and behold, new things have come. You've been transformed. You've been redeemed. You've been reconciled. You've been transformed, transformed in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it has the power to do that in everybody's life. It has the power to set you free, to transform you from codependent behavior, self-destructive habits, physical and psychological addictions, undisciplined thoughts and behaviors, obsessive compulsive behavior, personality quirks, psychological and emotional disorders, irritability, unhappiness, and your plain old everyday grumpiness. Let me give you the second thing. That's one point. My time is six minutes gone. Let me give you the second thing, and it's this. Look at the effect. Just look at the effect, and I'll close out with this. Verse 17, for in the righteousness of God, uh, for the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. That literally in the Greek, it is out of faith into faith. It is written that the righteous man, woman, shall live by faith. The righteous person shall live by faith. It is in the righteousness of God. That is God's standard. None of us live up to God's standard. He didn't come and say, my standard is 150 on the IQ scale. What would we all do? Because I don't think, I, yeah, fail is right. Because I don't think, you know, maybe there's somebody in here that got 150 IQ. But what, what would that do for the rest of us dummies? 
He didn't come, he didn't come and say, I'm going to save all of you who make seven figures a year. Well, my stars, I don't, I certainly don't, I don't think you do. What would that do for the rest of us? What he comes and he says is this, is that Jesus Christ died for the unrighteous so that he could make us the righteousness of God. So that God would see us as righteous. That's why when they took Jesus Christ to the cross and they began to nail him to the cross, they hammered those nails in his hand and they said to him, take that, you adulterer. Take that for cheating on your wife and lying to your wife and running around and breaking your marriage vows. You take that, Jesus. You take that, Jesus, for the lies that you've told to your family, the lies that you've told to your boss, the lies that you've told to your friends. You take that, Jesus. You take that, Jesus, for all of the cheating that you've done, for everything that you've taken that was not yours, for everything that you pilfered out of the company, for everything that you put your hand on, and you did it with such greed and cupidity. You take that, Jesus, and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute. They didn't crucify Jesus for that. Yeah. You say, but Jesus didn't do that. No. But we did. Huh? We did. And he died not for his sins. He died for my sins. And when they nailed him to the cross... Every sin in Mac Brunson's life was laid on him so that I could come to that cross and be clothed in the righteousness of God. Thank you for listening to this recording from Valleydale Church. To find more or to connect with us about what you just heard, check us out at valleydale.org.